James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful for another day of life. Lord, we recognize that none of us are promised tomorrow. That becomes so clear in the passage before us this morning. So God, it's with gratitude that we've gathered to worship you this morning. We are praising you and thanking you for the gift of life. Lord, we're also praising and thanking you for the gift of new life that we have in Christ. The fact that by faith in him, we're united to him and now we are children of God, daughters and sons of a perfect heavenly father. Also that we're brothers and sisters of one another, that the people to our left and the people to our right are actually family to us now, spiritual family. So Lord, it's a great joy to gather in your presence, in your house on your day of the week to worship you. And God, as we've read this passage of scripture and as we're beginning to inch our way closer to the end of the book of James, God, we would once again invite you now to speak to each and every one of us. And Lord, as we already learned in the book of James, help us to not be only hearers of your word, but so much more importantly, that we would each be doers of your word. So God, teach us and instruct us today. And then, Lord, transform us into the women and the men that you have called us to be. We love you. We're so thankful that you love us. And we commit the rest of our church service to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. So as of last night, I had no voice. And... We prayed and asked the Lord, please just give me a voice to be able to at least just preach tomorrow. And and so we're going to start off real slow here and kind of work into this. And if my voice feels good and strong, um, man, I might come down these stairs. I'll start preaching so hard in here. So, But if not, I'm going to be very reserved and just try to get through this awesome text that we have in James chapter 4. Now, we're all familiar with the story of the Titanic. Uh, It was in the spring of 1912 when that ship steamed off on its maiden voyage across the Atlantic Ocean. And at that point, when the Titanic set sail, it was the largest, fastest, and most luxurious cruise liner on planet Earth. But of course, only four days into its maiden journey, uh, around 11.40 p.m., the Titanic struck an iceberg which ultimately sank the ship. Now, unfortunately, at that time, uh, it was okay to not have enough lifeboats for all of your passengers. The Titanic had uh, just under enough lifeboats to cover half of the people who were traveling on the ship uh, at that time. And so tragically, 1,517 people died that night in the freezing cold waters of the northern Atlantic. Now, when this happened and the news began to hit both sides of the Atlantic, they were headed to New York, uh, the world was shocked obviously over the the massive loss of life. 
But the world was also shocked for another reason. And that reason being that the Titanic was considered by many people at the time to be nearly indestructible. In fact, Philip Franklin, who was the vice president of the shipping line, the shipping company that owned Titanic, famously made this statement. He said, there is no danger that Titanic will sink. That boat is unsinkable. Well, those proved to be proud and overly confident words. And it's this kind of prideful boast to this overconfidence in human power and ingenuity, this sense of, of ultimate control over one's life and over one's future and over one's destiny that James is taking a shot at in chapter 4, starting in verse 13. What we see in our text this morning is that this feeling of control over one's life and over one's future is merely an illusion. This is what he begins with, starting in verse 13. We'll read it again. James writes, Come now you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. We see here in verses 13 and 14 the illusion of autonomy. That's also the title of the sermon this morning, the illusion of autonomy. Now, I know that's a big fancy word, autonomy. Um, and some of us are going, what does autonomy mean again? I kind of know. Um, I didn't choose it to impress you. I chose it because it's a really careful word that articulates what's going on in the text here. The word autonomous means not subject to control from outside. It means independent. Um, but it means independent in the extreme sense of the word. Again, to be autonomous means that you are totally in control of your own affairs. That you are impervious to outside influence or outside control. And this idea that I am in total, complete control of my own life, that I control my destiny, is obviously not a new idea. James is dealing with it here some 2,000 years ago. But I would suggest to you this morning that this attitude and this perspective is multiplied in the day and age that you and I live in. And when you think about the explosion in technological innovation over the last, let's say, 150 years, you can begin to understand why more and more people, particularly in the modern West, feel this sense of control, of absolute control over their own lives and over their own fortunes and futures. I mean, think about it. We can split atoms and we can send people to the moon. We can produce everything from food to babies in a laboratory. We can, reg uh, we can regulate temperatures in our own homes and in our cars. We can travel across the world in a day. We can access the world's libraries and knowledge in an instant with a smartphone that we're holding in our hands. We can heal diseases and we can extend our lives. So of course, again, many people in modern Western countries like ours feel this heightened sense of autonomy, this heightened sense that I am in control. I can get what I need. I can do what I want to do. In 1875, William Ernest Henley wrote these famous words in his poem, Invictus, that captured the spirit of the age. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. 
Well, James's words and warnings here could hardly be more relevant for people like us. James here is challenging the spirit of the age, or the wisdom, I should say, of the spirit of the age with the wisdom that comes from the spirit of God. He's going to do this now through the rest of the book. Uh, this text, starting in verse 13, marks our fourth and final section in the book of James. Uh, we broke the book of James up into four main parts, um, and this gets us into the fourth and final section that we have titled, A Faith-Shaped Worldview. A Faith-Shaped Worldview. We should have a slide that shows the way we've broken down this book up to this point. We've, again, we've broken the book up into four separate parts, and this from this point forward, we're going to talk about a faith-shaped worldview. What I mean by that is James is going to look at a few different aspects of life, and he's going to address the question, how does our faith shape the way that we view the world? So in this case, he's looking at, again, our, our attitude toward our future and our attitude toward our control of our futures. And he's going to address how having faith in the Lord Jesus Christ should shape our understanding of that. Now, in verse 13, we realize very quickly that James is addressing a relatively small group of people in the churches that he is writing this letter to. These are well-to-do merchants. This is kind of the business class of this, this day and age. And again, this is a relatively small group of people. Um, in this time, in the ancient Near East, uh, there was a very, very tiny wealthy class or ruling class. And then there was a relatively small middle class or business class or merchant class who he's writing to here. And then the vast majority of people uh, lived in poverty. They were the working class. Uh, they lived in slavery or other uh, kinds of arrangements with people who had money and they themselves lived in poverty. These merchants here are demonstrating, though, a high level of presumption. If you look in the text there in verse 13, they basically say in this text, we're going to decide when we go, we're going to decide where we go, we're going to decide how long we're going to stay there, and we're going to also determine what we'll do, buying and selling, and we're guaranteed to make a profit while we're at it. This is kind of the height of presumption. Like, I am looking forward a year or two years, and I can just map out from A to Z my plan. And it is as good as guaranteed. The money's actually already in my pocket. It's kind of their attitude as they look toward the future. But what James wants to show us is that the idea that you have, that any of us have this level of control over our lives or control over future circumstances is nothing more than an illusion. It's just simply not the truth. Well, why is it an illusion? He's going to give us two main reasons here. The first main reason is the uncertainty of life. He says this, Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Life is uncertain. When I was a child, I had a pretty secure vision of what my future and specifically what my family looked like. My parents were Christians, at least as far as I could tell. I mean, we went to church every Sunday and my parents served in the church and everything seemed in my family to be predictable. But then one day, my dad gathered me and my older brother and my younger sister around our dining room table and sat us down 
and began to share some really, really alarming and shocking and sad news with us that my mom was leaving and that she was choosing to file for divorce. And I remember just thinking, how in the world could this be? Like, I didn't see this coming. I did not wake up today envisioning this for my future. In fact, I can recall uh, probably a year before that, um, I had several friends whose parents were divorced. And uh, as a child, you know, you have a really skewed understanding of the way the world works. And I remember I had this fleeting thought one time of what, at least to me, appeared to be sort of cool about the idea of divorce. And it was things like, wow, like my friend has two houses and he has two birthdays and he has two Christmases. And I kind of could almost see something cool about that. But then as quickly as I thought that, the thought that followed that up was this. Oh, but that would never happen for me. My parents are Christians. Little did I know that that would happen for me, that I didn't know that my parents could possibly get divorced. My thinking was they would never get divorced. My thinking was the Titanic is unsinkable, but life is uncertain. Sometimes it comes to you in the form of a diagnosis from the doctor. 24 hours before, the night before, you just didn't see that coming. You had a vision of your life and of your future, and this news comes out of left field and completely upends your life. Other times, it's an economic downturn or your company closing its doors and you being laid off and you just don't see this thing coming. Or perhaps it's a relationship that ends abruptly. Life is uncertain. And James wants us to remember that you do not know what tomorrow will bring. The second reason that this idea of autonomy is an illusion is related to the brevity of life the briefness of life, that life is so short. He tells us this. He says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. It's like your breath on one of these cold, crisp fall mornings. You breathe and you see the smoke for a second and then it's gone. It completely vanishes. James is saying, when you think of your life, whether it's five years long or a hundred years long, that is what it's like, because think about it, even a long life, even a person who lives a hundred years, I mean, that is a flash in the pan of human history. Life is quick. Life is like a vapor. And of course, no one is guaranteed a long life. Death is no respecter of persons. People die that are young and it's unexpected more often than we care to think about. So James is saying to us this morning, feelings of autonomy, this belief that you have control over your life and that you have control over your future is merely an illusion. Life is uncertain and death is imminent and we need this perspective if we're gonna actually live life wisely. This is what Moses writes in Psalm 90 verse 12. He says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. When we realize that life is short and death is imminent, we begin to develop a heart of wisdom. And we need this. I especially pray for the younger people among us, the teenagers and the young adults and the young marrieds who seem to think, if everything works out statistically, they have so many years ahead of them. I'm just so so concerned that we get this perspective in our hearts. None of us are guaranteed a long life. 
Because if we get this perspective, it helps us to live now for what truly matters. Like an iceberg sticking out of the sea, James punctures our sense of autonomy, showing us what it truly is. It's merely an illusion. What good question to ask ourselves is, what might it look like to be living under this illusion? Christians, I want us to pay special attention to this. You need to know that James, at this point of this letter, is writing to believers. The way we know that is that in verse 15, he offers them guidance on how to become more godly. That's not the way that he deals with non-Christians when he's writing to them, as we're going to see next week in chapter 5, with this warning to the rich and oppressive. All he says to the non-believers is, you need to know judgment is coming if you continue on that course. But for believers, he's offering instructions so that they can live more godly and live more wisely. So this warning here is toward the church. What might it look like to be living under this illusion? Maybe some of us will find ourselves living this way. One, one way this might manifest itself is in the way that it does in the text here. It's planning for tomorrow with little to no regard for God. This is the problem with these merchants. They're planning for tomorrow with little or no regard for God. Now, let me say this, that planning and preparing for our future in the Scriptures is commended. This is a good thing. This is a wise thing. It's good for you to think about the next 10, 20, 30 years and to try to make wise life decisions. This is commended everywhere. We see it in Proverbs 21.5. It says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Also over in Proverbs 6, 6 through 8, we read, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. So planning and preparing for our future is good. That's not the issue. What James is condemning here is the person who presumptuously makes plans with no regard to God. This might manifest itself in our lives every time we make a big life decision without first considering what is the will of God in this situation? What would God have me to do in this situation? So sometimes people, even good Christian people, will choose a career path. Listen up, young people, if you're still trying to think about a career path. We will choose a career path simply because that path makes more money than that path makes. As if somehow in God's kingdom, more money is an ultimate value. Instead of stopping and saying, which path is going to allow me to utilize the skills and the gifts that God has given me to further his kingdom most? It's a whole different type of question. We might do this by moving to another house across town that's bigger or nicer or seems to be in a better neighborhood, even though it doubles or triples our travel time to our church now and is going to make us largely disconnected from a local church family. Is that the wisest decision? We have to ask ourselves. But again, the problem is not necessarily moving to a bigger house. It would be the person who makes that decision because, well, it's bigger and nicer and not because they've discerned that God really wants them to go there. They just make the decision with no, con with no regard for God's opinion. We do this oftentimes without even praying. We just make these decisions. We just move into that next season or make that, uh, that choice 
But even when we do pray, oftentimes our prayers are nothing more than the way that we pray over our food. Y'all know how we pray over our food, right? I mean, stop and think about it. When we sit down with a meal, what are we asking? We're saying, Lord, thank you for this meal. And we ask God, a lot of us anyway, can you please use this food to nourish and strengthen my body for the day? What we're not saying is, God, can you help me to know if I should eat this or not right now? Like we've already made our mind up, right? It's going in. We're just asking God to bless it. Now, as it relates to food, I'm not condemning that. That's a great way to pray. We're supposed to read our food with gladness and with, or read, we're supposed to eat our food with gladness and thanksgiving in our hearts. Um, But I'm just using that as an illustration of the way that we might pray sometimes when we're making big life decisions. I find it especially funny when we pray that way over our food when we know it's really terrible food for us, right? It's like you're praying over this box of Krispy Kreme donuts. Lord, please help this Krispy Kreme donut to nourish my body and give me the strength that I need for the rest of this day. As if God is going to transform your Krispy Kreme donut into a kale shake as it's going down or something. But we can approach plan making and decision making in our life this way. I've already made up my mind. I'm already going to do this thing. Now, Lord, I just want you to bless it. Bless what I am going to do. Another example of what it might look like to live under this illusion is putting off what we know God wants us to do. This is a huge one. I'll become faithfully involved in a church once my life slows down a bit. I'll start giving regularly to my church when I get that raise or when I pay off those loans or when my kids get out of the house. I'll be hospitable and start having other people over when we get a bigger or a nicer space. I'll I'll stop neglecting my children and my spouse once I get this career up or this business maybe up and running and where it needs to go. Or the most dangerous of all, I'll give my life to Christ after I sow my wild oats a little bit or at some future point in my life when it's more convenient for me. I remember being a teenager and I was raised in the church and I remember thinking, you know, maybe I'll be a Christian someday, but I'll do it in the future when all this peer pressure is gone. Not realizing that adults have peer pressure too, but that was my thinking as a teenager. I'll get around to it someday, God forbid. Hebrew says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. None of us are guaranteed that opportunity. All of those examples I just gave are presuming you'll have a tomorrow to make these changes as if you and I are actually in control of how many days we are given. This is presumptuous and it's arrogant. A final example, and there are many more, but a final example I'll give us of what it might look like to live under this illusion is excessive worry. What is excessive worry communicating? Isn't it communicating that at the level of my heart, I really do believe that it's within my power to control my future and the outcomes that are ahead of me? Isn't it communicating that we believe we are responsible to work everything out in our futures? When Jesus famously in the Sermon on the Mount taught on anxiety and worry in Matthew chapter six, his teaching was to constantly point our attention toward our heavenly father who is providentially caring for his children. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 31 and 32. Therefore, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear or what job shall I get or how are we going to pay the bills? Okay, I'm adding that, but 
Verse 32 says, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So excessive worry is communicating this this unhealthy uh, attitude that I am in control. I have to fix these things. I have to make make this work. Otherwise, all is doomed. And Jesus is saying, uh, not true. Because if you belong to me, then you have a father in heaven who, guess what? He's in charge of everything. And he will take care of your needs. Okay, we talked about the illusion of autonomy Verse 15 now is going to bring us to the solution for autonomy. James writes this, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James is saying, here's the reality about your life. Here's the reality about your future. If the Lord wills. Now, the issue is not the phrase that he's using here. Like as if, We just mutter, if the Lord wills over all of our life's plans, then they're suddenly baptized in God's blessing or something. That would turn this into just one more Christian cliche. And God knows we don't need any more of those. So the the point that James is making is not that we utter these words constantly. The issue is taking God's will into consideration in all of our decision making. James here is helpfully reminding the church that God is sovereign. That God and God alone is in complete control over the affairs of men and over the affairs of nations and over the affairs of galaxies. God is in control. He is the one who ultimately has say-so when it comes to our lives. Far from being entirely independent, you and I, if we really understand the way the world is working, will realize we are entirely dependent on Him. For every breath we take, for every dollar you have in your bank account, it's all because of Him. And this is so helpful. This reshapes our attitude toward life. It reshapes our attitude toward our futures. Because this humbles us to see that, friends, you and I are not ultimately in control. God is. So yes, as Christians, we do plan our future and we try to do that as wisely as we can. But all the while, we are yielding and submitting our plans to our Father in heaven and we are saying, at the end of the day, what I want is whatever you want for me. Proverbs 16.9 puts it this way, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Do you see the balance there? We plan our way, but we're aware that ultimately it is the Lord who is establishing our steps. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So according to James, the solution to autonomy is to live our lives in humble dependence on God. Well, what does that look like, Daniel? Three things quickly. It begins by discerning. What do I mean by discerning? I mean discerning the will of the Lord. It begins by doing the hard work of learning God's will in the scriptures, by reading it yourself, by coming to church regularly, by sitting down with another saint who is more seasoned in God's word than yourself and asking good questions about what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my future? This is 
us resisting the temptation to just make any old decision and assume that it's God's will. We say, what does God's word say? Because we recognize Proverbs 16, 25 teaches us that there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So we're not going to give in to that temptation to think, well, whatever I think has got to be right. I already know God's will. No, we're going to follow the teaching of Romans 12, 2, where Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing, and specifically testing against or according to God's word, you may discern what is the will of God. That's what we want. We want to discern what is the will of God, but we've got to test all of our thoughts, all of our plans against God's word. So it's by discerning. This is what humble dependence on God looks like. It's also by inquiring. What I mean by that is prayerfully inviting God to create and, listen, correct your plans if your plans are wrong. If your plans are not in alignment with God's will, we are the type of people who are, yes, spending our lives studying God's word and trying to discern his will for us. But we're also, as we make decisions and we're approaching decisions in our lives, we are inquiring of the Lord. God, what is your will for me? God, guide me here. God, I'm thinking this, but if I'm wrong, overrule, correct, veto. You have the authority to do that. Finally, what it looks like to live in humble dependence on God is submitting. This is often the hardest. What I mean by submitting is that we have a posture of heart that is willing to yield to what God wants, even if, especially if, it's not what we want. When God is saying, no, 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 this is my will for you, rather than going kicking and screaming, what it looks like to live in humble dependence is to say, you know what? Father knows best. Father knows best. I'm going to trust. Jesus, of course, modeled this in the most extreme situation. In the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was looking forward at a cross where he knew he would be crucified for the sins of his people, where he knew that the full wrath of his own Father was awaiting him for our sins. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. So Jesus is saying, if there's another way we can achieve what we want to achieve, Father, I'm all about that. Let's do that. So it's great to do that, to lay our plan before the Lord. God, this is what I want here. This is what I'm thinking in this situation. I don't want cancer. I don't want whatever it is. But Jesus says this, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Submitting himself to the will of the Father. This is the solution to autonomy. It's discerning God's will in the scriptures. It's inquiring of him in prayer and it's submitting to his will when it conflicts with our own. Well, third and finally, in these last two verses, James wants to make clear that what we're dealing with with this false sense of autonomy is not just foolish thinking. He wants us to see that it's actually sinful thinking. And so we see here the sinfulness of autonomy. Verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. 
This sort of perspective, we'll call it a very secular perspective, that I am in control of my life or that I'm the only one who has any ability to shape my future, James wants us to see that that thinking is actually rooted in the sin of pride and arrogance. It's an overestimation of your own significance, of your own strength, of your own power to influence your life and your destiny. And it's a complete rejection of the truth that it's God who's in control. It's sort of like Satan in eternity past when he said, I'm gonna seat myself on the throne of God. That's where I wanna be. That's what we're doing in our heart every single time that we look at our lives and we say, I'm the one who's in control. I am the captain of my own soul. Nothing could be further from the truth. Living under the illusion of autonomy is a sin that must be turned from. And as we've seen, we must instead choose to live in utter dependence on God. And notice that according to verse 17, if we fail to act on what we know, James says it is a sin. Verse 17 is describing a sin of omission. Now it's often explained that there's two types of sins. There's sins of commission, and then there are sins of omission. A Sunday school teacher who was speaking to his class on the topic of sin asked, can anyone tell me what the sin of commission is? One girl raised her hand. I know, she said. The sin of commission is when you do what you shouldn't do. That's right, the teacher said. Now can someone tell me what the sin of omission is? A little boy was in the back of the class and he's kind of waving his hand frantically because he knew he had the answer. And so his teacher called on him. The little boy said, the sin of omission? Where those are the sins that you want to do, but you haven't got around to yet. <laughs> Though you can't help but smile at his answer, it's just not quite right. The sin of omission is exactly what James is describing here in verse 17. It's when we know what we're supposed to do. It's when we know what we ought to do in a situation and we just don't do it. We fail to obey what we know is right. These believers were now armed with the truth about the universe that they lived in, that they are not the center of it, that they don't control it, that there is a sovereign God whose will ultimately reigns in the universe. And so for them to either choose to continue to live with this illusion of autonomy or to fail now to humbly depend on God would be nothing short of sin. It was rooted in sinful pride. So James here is writing to believers, as I mentioned earlier, and so his call to action is basically this. Acknowledge it for what it is, sin, so that's confession, and then turn away from it and live in humble dependence on God. For those of us that are believers here this morning, perhaps God has shown us areas where we're clutching to our lives and to our futures and at least at the level of our hearts, believing that we have more control and more autonomy than we actually do, our response is the same. Own it. Let's address it. Let's call it for what it is, that this is actually sinful when we live this way. And turn from these sins by grace and say, I'm going to choose by God's grace and the power of the Spirit to not live this way anymore, but instead to humbly submit myself to the Lord. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So we have to call it what it is. And the truth is not in us. 
If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You and I as believers can confess our sins with no fear of judgment and we can turn back to God every time we fail because our sins have already been decisively dealt with. 2,000 years ago when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, Jesus was bearing the penalty for all of our sins, past, present, and future, where the Lamb of God was slain who takes away the sins of the world. And despite our failures to depend on God in every circumstance, Jesus perfectly depended on the Father for us. That's why he was qualified to die in our place. Only Jesus of Nazareth could say, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. You can't say that. I can't say that. But Jesus can say it. Jesus did say it because Jesus was sinless and he was perfectly righteous. He never sinfully assumed he had more control over his future than was true. He instead said, I am going to, as a man, depend solely on my Father for everything in my life and in my future. As Christians, every time we disregard God and we exhibit the sinful pride of being in ultimate control, we confess anew our sinfulness and we rely anew on God's faithfulness to forgive. That's our response. But if you're not a Christian here this morning, your response can be the same. Your reaction to this news, that there is a sovereign God who's in control of your right now and who is in control of your tomorrow, and that your life is uncertain, that your life is short, and that you will stand before him one day, your call to action is exactly the same. It's to confess that these things are true. It's to confess your sin in your life before your maker. And it's to turn to him in faith and receive the forgiveness that he so freely offers you in and through his son, Jesus Christ. Because Christ died on that cross 2,000 years ago to pay for your sins if you would turn to him in faith. You can trust him today and say, I'm done living for myself. I'm done living in foolish pride. I am going to start living my life now for God. And if you do that, he will forgive you of your sins. And if you do that, he will begin to transform your life. Church, life is short and uncertain. The foolish person lives for themselves with little to no regard for God and his will. But the wise person is the person who lives for what truly matters. And they take that little vapor that we all call life and they wring it out for every possible ounce of living for God's glory that they can get out of it. Which person are you this morning? Let's pray together. Father, you tell us in the book of Psalms that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Lord, every time we study the scriptures, we sense that to be true. That your word constantly confronts our ways of thinking, our ways of living, and constantly shows us a wiser and better way to live. Of course, that's because as we study the scriptures, we are hearing anew your very words. These are words from heaven. 
These are words from an omnipotent, all-knowing, all-powerful creator who organized the world the way that it is, understands all of its principles and how it operates, and you created us, men and women in your image, and you know what it looks like to live life the way it was intended. So Lord, this morning, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word. And this morning, we once again, by faith, turn in our hearts away from any sense of reliance on ourselves. And we turn to you in humble dependence, asking that you would continue to help us to live actively in your presence and in an active awareness of how near you are. And that we would humbly submit all of our plans, all of our desires and our futures to you, trusting that you are good and that you love us and that your plans for us are never to harm us, but always to bless us. And Lord, I pray that as future weeks and months pile on top of us and stresses of life continue to overcrowd us and we begin to revert back perhaps to some of these sinful tendencies, Lord, we pray that this word would once again pop up in our minds and that we would constantly live in this posture of confessing our sins the moment we, we see them and then rejoicing in the forgiveness that you've provided in Christ and then renewing our commitment to live in humble dependence on you. Lastly, Father, for any who have joined us this morning who are not yet Christians, oh Holy Spirit, we pray that you would draw out faith in their hearts, that you would help them to see the reality of who you are, that you do exist, and that you do love them, and that you sent Christ for them so that they might be forgiven of their sins, and have a relationship with their Father in heaven. So Lord, help them to see that even here today. We love you, Jesus, and we commit ourselves to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, church, let's stand to our feet, and we're going to close now in a song of worship, because he is worthy. Amen.